0: Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, poisoning, violence and other criminal activity that may be disturbing. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Most people struggle with confidence at some point throughout their lives. Whether it's our appearance, skill level or social graces we wonder if we have what it takes. But some people possess the preternatural ability to bend the world to their will, to convince themselves and others that they are special, that they wield a power that others can only dream of. These people may become heads of state or titans of industry. They may become religious figures or spiritual guides. Or... They use their self-confidence to take whatever they want, regardless of who it hurts. Like Morris Bolber. He convinced others he could solve their troubles. He spoke of himself as a rabbi and a doctor when both claims were suspect. And with the help of his henchmen ran an infamous murder ring. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from ParCast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to, do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alistair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to help Alistair with some
1: medical insight into our case of Morris Bulber a Depression-era phony
0: doctor, fake rabbi, but a real scam artist and killer. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Morris Bulber, a con man with a dubious medical background and a penchant for what he called faith healing. Dr. Bulba preyed on Philadelphia's Italian immigrant community throughout the 1930s. Together with a pair of con-man cousins, Bulba masterminded a murder-for-hire poison ring that, by some estimates, killed more than 50 people. In this episode, we'll look at Dr. Bulba's almost unbelievable early life and see how he found his way to Philadelphia where he developed an insurance scam selling lethal love potions to dissatisfied wives. Next time, we'll cover how the poison ring was uncovered by law enforcement thanks to a single judgment error. Then, we'll follow the subsequent media frenzy and courtroom circus that ended in 70 exhumed bodies, 23 convictions, 15 life sentences and 2 tickets to the electric chair all this and more coming up stay with us this episode is brought to you by anytime
2: fitness forget dark alleys and cemeteries for some the gym is the scariest place of all but it doesn't have to be New season out on Spotify soon.
0: In a dark Philadelphia room, Anna Arena shivered. She was clad only in a corset and brazier. Candles illuminated her face, and her fingers tensed on the sides of her high-backed chair. It was December nineteen thirty-one. And though Anna could feel the cold night air raise goosebumps on her arms, she couldn't help but break out in nervous sweat. The wooden seat grew slick with perspiration from her bare thighs, but she tried not to make a sound as a man with a knife circled her. After all, she was paying him. Anna had hired this man to fix her love life. The middle-aged healer waving a mystical knife over her had come on a high recommendation from her boss at the tailor shop. Indeed, many women in the Pashyunk neighborhood of South Philadelphia praised this mysterious man and his magical ability to bring back wayward husbands, like Anna's. The healer was plump and ill-kempt, maybe 40 at most, but despite his otherwise average appearance, he had one remarkable trait. One of his eyes was brown with peculiar grey spots half covered by a drooping eyelid and rumored to curse any who looked upon it. Whispers circulated that it was a physical manifestation of the evil eye itself. Many feared this eye, but more so they feared the man it belonged to. Morris Bulber a self-described faith healer known as the rabbi. Whether or not Bulba was an actual rabbi remains in question. Not much is known about the early life of Morris Bulba that didn't come from his own lips. He was born on a frigid morning in January 1890 in a small Russian village. His mother, a religious woman, died when he was only a year old, and he was sent to live with his grandfather. At age seven, Bulber went to school in a nearby town, and at nine, he claims to have enrolled at a place called Grodno University, where he was the youngest of 400 students.
1: It's unclear exactly what university Bulber was talking about, but he could have been referring to the Grodno Medical Academy, the first medical school in Belarus, which has roots dating back to 1775. Even in the 1890s, a nine-year-old wouldn't be able to grasp the complexities of medical training, so there's either a lot of missing info behind this claim, or Bulber's just flat-out lying. The youngest person I've ever heard of attending medical school is Dr. Bala Ambadi, After graduating from high school at 11, he finished college in two years and started his medical training at the age of 14. Then in 1995, at 17, he became the world's youngest person to earn a medical degree. Dr. Mbadi's case is obviously quite remarkable, and although I'm sure he was a very wise, worldly, and weathered nine-year-old, even he needed an extra few years to get through med school. If Bulber's account of his own history is true, even for 1899, this would have been a miraculous feat. It seems more likely that he exaggerated his past to seem more impressive.
0: Bulber's age at university wasn't the only notable part of his childhood story. During his time at Grodno, Bulber claimed to have first heard of a book that would eventually change his life a book known to him as the Kabbalah. Kabbalah, or Kabbalah, as it is more commonly called now, is a school of thought with ties to many religious, cultural and esoteric practices. What Balba seems to be referring to here, however, is a collection of texts that emerged from early forms of Jewish mysticism. The texts began as an interpretation of ancient writings about the meaning of life, But by the Middle Ages, a particular branch of Kabbalah rose to popularity. That branch, the one Bulba spoke of, was a collection of mystic rites and cures that some people in the early 1900s might have thought of as a type of witchcraft. Young Bulba was instantly obsessed. But unfortunately for him, his teachers at university banned him from reading the Kabbalah. They said he was, quote, too young and not holy enough to interpret the text. Bulba focused on his studies, but the book lurked in the back of his mind, a force pushing him toward the strange, forbidden corners of human knowledge. Bulba claimed to have graduated university in 1902 at the age of 12, He felt an urge to see more of the world, so he set course for the biggest city he had ever heard of, Odessa on the Black Sea. There, he studied and taught children. Finally, Bulba decided he was holy enough to do something he'd wanted to do nearly half his life, read the Kabbalah. Within the book's pages, he claims to have learned ancient secrets that taught him to cure a wide variety of ailments, everything from minor illnesses to paralysis and even cancer. He started treating patients around Odessa using potions and salves of turpentine, vinegar, alcohol, and horseradish. Bulba quickly realized that what most allowed him to heal his patients wasn't potions or magic. It was belief. Belief in the ancient wisdom of the Kabbalah, but more importantly, belief in himself. Though most of Bulber's methods have little to no
1: scientific basis, he was right about belief playing a big part in the healing process. This is known as the placebo effect, which is basically when a person gets positive results from a treatment that isn't proven to work. It's not totally understood how placebos do work, but they most certainly involve the powers of belief, positivity, and routine. When we engage in health-affirming behavior and believe that what we're doing is good for our vitality, then feel-good neurotransmitters, like dopamine and endorphins, flood our systems, and this can be physically therapeutic. There's also data to show that placebo treatments create heightened activity in regions of the brain that are tied to mood, self-awareness, and emotional regulation. And this certainly manifests psychologically and often physiologically for the better. It's estimated that about 20% of people will respond positively to placebos. And this is an interesting notion outside the purview of science that may influence someone's recovery.
0: After four years in Odessa, Morris Bulba had a new prescription for himself. Travel. At 16, he decided it was time to make his mark on the world, and more importantly, to make himself some money. He traveled east to Siberia, Japan, then China. He claimed that in China, an exiled Indian sorceress named Rhino taught him the ancient magic of the knife a practice that involved chanting incantations while waving a special blade. Bulba then began carrying his own magic knife in his pocket. It's difficult to know if any of Bulba's self-proclaimed history, particularly the far-fetched or fantastical parts, is true. Bulba was, if nothing else, a storyteller. He cultivated an image of himself that helped further his own means. And while there's much to be learned from his fabrications, we can confirm that, at age 21, Morris Bulber set his compass west for a new world, America. He arrived in New York City on February 27, 1911. By this time, he claimed to be fluent in ten languages, including Russian, Chinese, Arabic, English and Hebrew he was eager to start what he called a faith-healing practice with the knowledge he'd amassed from his travels. But before he could set up shop, he found himself beset by a phenomenon familiar to many men in their 20s. He fell in love. Her name was Esther. Just a schoolgirl when she met Maurice Bulba, Esther lived on the Lower East Side with her parents and two sisters. Before long, she and Bulba fell head over heels. They married in 1913. There was one problem though. Esther didn't approve of anything resembling witchcraft. So when Bulba told Esther of his goals to practice faith healing, Esther put her foot down. She told Bulba that if he followed his dream of becoming a traditional healer, she would leave him. Out of love for his new wife, Bulba, put his dreams aside. He neglected magic and medicine for nearly 14 years. Instead, he taught Hebrew to local Jewish boys preparing for their bar mitzvahs and opened a chain of grocery stores. But by 1927 he'd lost interest in teaching Hebrew and his grocery store chain failed. Bolber again found himself thirsty for new opportunities. So he decided to head south to the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Temporarily leaving his family in New York, Bulba opened a new grocery store. Eventually, he was doing well enough to move Esther and their four children to Philadelphia. He was all in. But the timing couldn't have been worse. Signs of the coming Great Depression hit Philadelphia in early 1929, and times were hard. Bulba was forced to shutter his newest grocery store after only one year. But though Philadelphia didn't prove fertile ground for a grocery business, Bulba discovered it did have something even more valuable to him. A community of believers. Beginning in the late 1800s, Philadelphia welcomed a large influx of Italian immigrants. By the 1930s, Italians made up nearly one-fifth of the immigrant population in the city. A large number of these immigrants lived in South Philadelphia, where Bulba primarily operated. And what's more, the community was famously superstitious. The Great Depression had hit them hard, and it's possible this made them particularly vulnerable to magical thinking. They believed in all manner of witchcraft, including la fatura, a form of magic. Within this practice, some focused on the concept of the evil eye, which would curse someone to misfortune or even death. With Bulba's Russian accent, fantastical life story and eerie eye, he was perfectly suited to take advantage of this community. And in 1931, Bulba finally wore Esther down, getting her blessing to start his business as a healer. He took out an ad in an Italian-language newspaper and sent out flyers in South Philly's Pashunk neighborhood, announcing his new practice as a faith healer, Kabbalah expert and specialist in the mysterious Eastern art of the knife. Within a day of distributing the flyers, Bulba claims his first customer knocked on his door. From there, he saw patients regularly. He charged about 50 cents a visit, certainly not cheap at the time. However, Bulba did personalize his treatments. For the religious, he prescribed church. For the superstitious, he gave advice like, bring me hairs from your abusive husband's head To burn at midnight. Or, hang a fish in the moonlight for four days, then take it down and eat it. And of course, for anyone who was taken by his tales of ancient cures, he uttered incantations in foreign tongues, waving his famous magic knife. Bulba's preternatural belief in himself soon spread to his customers. Even when his spells failed, it was always due to supposed evil influences rather than a lack of skill. Word spread fast. Locals began calling him the rabbi due to the fact that he used to teach Hebrew. Business was good, but not as good as Bulba would have liked. To amass enough clients, Bulba needed an inn, someone embedded in the community. And lucky for Bulba, In 1931, a client invited him to a secret meeting of Philadelphia's healers and naturopaths. Bulba was excited. He hoped to make some connections, maybe learn a few tricks of the trade. But when he arrived at the meeting, he was not impressed with what he found. The Fatura doctors, as Bulba called them, were, in his mind, Mostly a bunch of superstitious fools obsessed with the idea of devils. But there was one attendee who would loom large in Bulba's life, setting one of them on a course for prison and the other for the electric chair. Paul Petrillo. Coming up, Maurice Bulba teams up with Paul Petrillo in a get-rich-quick
3: insurance scam. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I use social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some...
0: In late 1931, traditional healer Morris Bulber met a man who would change his life, 39-year-old Paul Petrillo. Charming and sharply dressed, Paul was an Italian immigrant who owned a struggling tailor business in the Pasiunc neighborhood. The front of the shop housed a legitimate garment business, but the back was reserved for Paul's true passion, divine healing, as it was written on his business card but Paul had a small problem. Though he advertised himself as a magical healer, Paul's spells and potions rarely worked. Despite a deep belief in magic, Paul didn't have the unshaken confidence in himself that Bulba possessed. As a result, when Paul finally met Bulba, he quickly became ensnared in Bulba's net. The day after they met, Paul showed up on Bulba's doorstep to offer him a deal. Paul, who had been part of Philadelphia's Italian immigrants community for nearly two decades, would send clients he couldn't help to Bulba. In exchange, Paul requested Bulba give him 50 cents of every dollar he made. Bulba agreed. The arrangement grew into a prosperous friendship Bulba taught Paul some of the secret magic he learned overseas and Paul's connections in the community expanded Bulba's client base. They were open to almost any customer, but thanks to a robust gossip network among the ladies of Pashunk, they mostly served women, particularly Italian women whose husbands were unfaithful or had lost interest in them. In cases like these, Bulba provided the women with sex therapy which usually involved commanding the woman to strip naked as Bulba chanted and waved his knife. Then he would give her a potion to feed her unwitting husband, intended to turn him into a model spouse. Sometimes, women showed up with unwanted pregnancies, and if incantations didn't work, Bulba and Petrilo lined up a medical practitioner willing to provide an abortion for a fee, with a kickback to the middlemen, of course the Bulba-Petrillo healing network grew every day, and Paul was about to present Morris Bulba with an idea that could more than double their income. For years, Paul Petrillo had been committing insurance fraud. He'd first heard about it from agents who patronized his tailor shop selling cheap life insurance policies to immigrants. The key detail, the agents told Paul, was that the insurance companies allowed them to write policies with no medical examination.
1: It's a common and routine obligation to disclose health records and any pre-existing medical conditions before taking out a life insurance policy. This is because insurance companies are always looking to save money by denying benefits, and patients' medical histories and exams provide reasons for them to do so. These medical tests and records now often foil insurance scams, especially because companies are so meticulous about reviewing these health documents and have such strict qualifying rules. Apparently, life insurance carriers weren't exactly hip to this policy in the 1930s. And it seems like little prevented someone like Paul Petrillo from profiting off his sickly vulnerable
0: neighbors. For a quick paycheck, Paul took out life insurance policies on people he believed would die soon. Sometimes Paul would take out a policy directly and list himself as a relative of the insured. But that was risky. If the insurance company caught wind that Paul and the client weren't related, it would all be for nothing. It was best to have a family member on the inside, like a wife or a child, who trusted Paul to take out the policy, pay the premiums, and split the payout with them when their loved one died. Paul had been trying to tip the scales in his favor by cursing those he insured to an early death. Again, this man truly believed he had magical powers, that he was a witch. His cursing skills were simply lacking. But now, Paul had a secret weapon. Morris, the Rabbi Bulber. With Bulba's magic on his side, Paul was convinced they could make the insurance scams worth their while. Morris Bulba liked this new plan. Life insurance policies could pay anywhere from $400 to several thousand. Even split between Morris, Petrillo, and a family member of the insured, the potential payout made Bulba's healing fees seem paltry in comparison. And what's more, Bulba, had a lead, the perfect candidate for an insurance payout. Bulba had been giving seamstress Anna Arena sex therapy for a few months since December 1931. She initially came to him hoping he could reform her drunk and neglectful husband Joseph Arena. But when Bulba's spells and potions failed to change the man, he tried a different bizarre tactic. Bulba paired Mrs. Arena with one of his male clients named Dominic Rodeo. He had Anna gather her menstrual blood, then he fed it to Rodeo to make him fall in love with her. Astonishingly, Bulba's plan worked. Anna and Dominic began a torrid affair, By the spring of 1932, Anna's husband Joseph was an inconvenience to her, standing in the way of her exciting new lover. So Paul sent one of his insurance agent friends to Anna, and she took out an accidental death double indemnity policy on her husband worth $3,200, enough to buy a new house for Anna and her lover. Paul paid the premiums for a few months Then he and Bulba set to work attempting to fix the evil eye on an unsuspecting Joseph Arena. Bulba used all the tricks in his book. He chanted in different languages, waved his mystical knife around, and concocted spells and rituals tied to the cycles of the moon. But the middle-aged Joseph Arena proved resilient against Bulba's black magic. Paul became impatient as time ticked by and insurance premiums stacked up. Though he still strongly believed in Bulba's powers, it was time to take a more direct route. His evil eye needed a little help. For that, Paul enlisted the help of his cousin, Herman Petrillo. Herman Petrillo was a character, to put it mildly. Slightly younger than his cousin Paul, Herman was a failed spaghetti and olive oil salesman turned con man. He was a persuasive talker and an inveterate schemer. Despite having no education or consistent job, Herman's various scams, most of them illegal, always kept his wallet flush with cash. He was known for his sharp dress suits and his shiny green Plymouth. Much like his cousin, Herman had a number of side hustles. He was a counterfeiter who made regular trips to New York to bring back fake $5 and $10 bills. And even more brazen, he was also a self-educated bomb maker who would blow up his own heavily insured buildings to collect the money. Herman had a wide network of con men and criminals at his fingertips, as well as the stomach for a little violence. So when he got a note from his cousin, Paul, instructing him to send Joseph Arena to California, their code for murdering someone, Herman set to work. Early in the morning on June 30th, 1932, Herman Petrillo picked up Joseph Arena at the house he shared with his wife, Anna. It seems the two men were acquaintances, as they lived in the same neighborhood. So as he got into the Plymouth, Joseph believed the plan was to go crabbing at Ludlam's channel on the Jersey Shore. Herman had also invited Dominic Rodio, Anna's secret lover, as well as one of Herman's criminal friends, who happened to be an experienced assassin. On the drive, the trio got Joseph Arena drunk. When the group arrived at Ludlam's channel, they rented a fishing boat and shoved off into the water. It was early in the season and the water was mostly empty. The men began to cast out their lines, leaning over the side of the boat to check if they'd caught anything. The moment the intoxicated arena leaned over the side, Dominic Rodeo shoved him overboard into the frigid water. Arena paddled desperately to the surface, but Rodeo and Herman's assassin friend hit him over the head with an oar until he went limp. Finally, Arena's body sank beneath the salty waters off the coast. They left him underwater long enough to make it appear he had drowned before recovering the body and reporting his accidental death. The presence of alcohol
1: in Joseph Arena's system would likely have suggested to a coroner that the man drunkenly fell out of his boat and drowned. In relation to the actual cause of death, however, this would really need to be determined through an autopsy. For example, Joseph's head wounds from the oar beating could have taken priority over a death from drowning, but this would depend on how severe the injuries were. If the autopsy revealed a particularly bad brain bruise or bleed, for example, the verdict could have been death from head trauma. Unless this was obvious, it would have been tough for a coroner, especially back then, to tell exactly how the head wounds factored into Joseph's death. It can be really difficult to tell whether any kind of laceration preceded a person's drowning, especially when the estimated age of the injury is relatively consistent with the time a corpse spent in the water. This wasn't a perfect crime, but it definitely could have thrown investigators just enough for these criminals to get away with murder.
0: Perfect crime or not, a few weeks after the incident, Bulba and the Petrilos had the $3,200 insurance payout. They split the money amongst themselves and the newly widowed Anna Arena. Anna and Dominic were now free to be together. They'd both been, in their minds, cured. And Bulba and the Petrilos started the hunt for their next victim. Coming up, Morris Bulba comes up with a foolproof way to ensure his evil eye finds its victim. Now, back to the story. In 1932, self-styled doctor and rabbi Morris Bulber had taken his faith healing to a new level. He was healing failed marriages by killing cheating husbands. Even better, he'd conspired with two cousins, Herman and Paul Petrillo, to take out life insurance on their victims, ensuring a hefty profit. With their first victim sent to California, their code for murdered, they were on the lookout for their next mark. In July, the perfect candidate came knocking at their door. Rose Lavecchio. Rose owned a confectionery store near Paul Petrillo's tailor shop. Though the sweets she sold made her enough money to get by during the Great Depression, Rose had a problem. Her husband, Luigi, was dying. After falling from a scaffold in 1923, Luigi had never fully recovered. He'd remained bedridden with recurring respiratory issues for years, and by mid-1932, his doctor had not given him long to live, telling Rose that Luigi's insides were green and about to burst. The human body is incredibly complex
1: and relies on many internal organ systems to function properly. In all my years of practice, I've never heard of someone's intestines turning green unless Luigi's doctors were referring to the greenish coloring of bile that might have leaked from a burst gallbladder. Bile is a yellowish or green-colored fluid produced in the liver and secreted by the gallbladder to aid in digesting fats and carrying away their waste products. Structures within the intestinal system, like the gallbladder, if severely inflamed from infection can then rupture or burst and spread the infection to the outer membrane, called the peritoneum, that encases these organs. This then leads to peritonitis, an infection of this abdominal protective lining, which then spreads to other organs within the belly. This is not an uncommon scenario from a burst organ like the gallbladder or appendix, and these infections can be life-threatening unless quickly treated with tailored antibiotics and surgical removal of the compromised organ. Regardless of the actual details of Luigi Lavecchio's medical history, It seems apparent that at this stage he was in poor health.
0: Luigi was running out of time, but Rose had heard some of her women customers talk about how the rabbi was able to solve all manner of problems, even reviving seriously ill husbands. Desperate to save her beloved Luigi, Rose made her way to Dr. Bulba's doorstep. immediately pegged Rose as a woman of financial means. In addition to her sweets shop, she owned two rental houses and sold homemade wine. Bulba intended to extract as much money from her as possible, so he began devising a ritual to heal Luigi that would actually send him to his grave. In the meantime, he sent Rose to his partner, Paul Petrillo. Paul tried to get Rose to take out life insurance on her husband, but Rose refused. She already had three policies totaling $900. He was too sick now to be approved for insurance anyway. Paul told Rose not to worry. He knew someone who could give her insurance with no medical exam. Rose agreed, and Paul's friend prepared two applications for $400 each. He dated the policies one month apart and forged Luigi's signature. The man assured Paul that he didn't need to worry about the tampered paperwork since there was little to no scrutiny for policies valued at less than $500. Now all Paul had to do was sit back and wait for Bulba's magic to push Luigi over the edge. But despite being at death's door, Luigi also proved resistant to Bulba's curses. At the end of July 1932, Luigi still lived. Once again, Paul became impatient with paying insurance premiums. To make things more complicated, the bedridden Luigi never left the house, which made it nearly impossible for Herman Petrillo and his goons to send him to California. Then, On the afternoon of July 30th, Bulba called Paul with a new idea that was foolproof. Bulba gave Rose a magical powder and instructed her to sprinkle the powder on Luigi's food three times a day. Bulba claimed the powerful potion would heal Luigi and restore him to his former vigor. But what Bulba didn't mention was that mixed into the otherwise harmless powder was a lethal dose of arsenic. The effect was immediate. The day Rose started sprinkling the supposed magic potion in Luigi's food, he suffered vomiting and diarrhea. Concerned, Rose called a doctor recommended to her by Paul Petrillo. The doctor did a quick exam and diagnosed Luigi with bronchitis and gastroenteritis, believed to be due to excessive garlic consumption. For a long time,
1: it's been recognized that eating garlic can help boost the immune system and contribute to cardiac health. But just like many other healthy foods, ingesting excessive amounts can lead to a host of problems. Because garlic is acidic, it can cause irritation in the intestinal tract, especially in people with irritable bowel syndrome. In rare cases, eating large quantities of highly acidic foods in a short time frame can in fact lead to gastroenteritis, which is a swelling of the intestinal lining, normally caused by bacteria, parasites, or viruses. So in relation to our story, this diagnosis wasn't out of the question. The irony in all of this, of course, is that Luigi's garlic breath was not indicative of the cause of his illness, but rather was a lesser-known symptom of arsenic poisoning.
0: The doctor prescribed additional medication for Luigi's gastroenteritis. But Rose still believed in Morris Bulba's miracle cure, so she continued to dose Luigi's food with the powder he gave her alongside the doctor's medication. When luigi hadn't improved in a week she called paul patrillo and asked him what was in the powder paul reassured rose and told her this was the way the powder was supposed to work three days later luigi was incredibly sick but still miraculously alive paul checked in with boulder who made a visit to his druggist friend who'd given him the first batch of arsenic this time he obtained a stronger poison in capsule form. Paul was confused. He asked Bulba why they didn't start with the capsules in the first place. Bulba explained Luigi needed to be really sick before he took those. The capsules contained a drug very similar to arsenic, antimony. The capsules of antimony were likely more concentrated than the arsenic powder. And Bulba may have believed that because Luigi was already in such a weakened state, he'd be unable to resist the full force of the new drug's lethal effects. Armed with the antimony capsules, Paul went to the Lovecchio home and instructed Rose to give them to Luigi. But Rose was fed up with the magical faith healing. None of it was working, so she refused. So Paul Petrillo took measures into his own hands. Paul shoved past Rose, then marched over to the ailing Luigi's bedside and shoved two capsules in his mouth, forcing him to swallow. Luigi Lavecchio spent one last agonizing day in bed before he died at 10 p.m. that evening. The doctor who had been treating him cited gastroenteritis as the cause of death. Bulba's plan had worked. A few weeks after Luigi's funeral, Paul stopped by the Lavecchio house to check on the insurance money. He found Rose crying, devastated about her late husband. Paul tried, insincerely, to comfort her, and told her she could do better than a man who was sick in bed all the time and couldn't even work to pay the bills. Then, he asked about the insurance. Rose showed him the $900 check she had gotten from her insurance policy. The problem was, she didn't even know what to do with it. She didn't have a bank account. She didn't even know how to read or write. Paul took the grieving widow to the bank and helped her cash the cheque. But when the teller turned over the cash, Paul pocketed all of it. Rose protested. This was from the insurance policy she'd had on Luigi before she met Paul. He didn't have the right to take the entire payout, especially when his remedies hadn't even cured her husband. Paul quickly put Rose in her place. He revealed that she was complicit in her husband's death since the powder she'd sprinkled on his food contained poison. He told her, quote, "'You helped do that job on your husband.' He threatened to kill her if she gave him any more trouble. Rose must have been shocked and horrified And whether or not she believed Paul Petrillo, she quickly realized she didn't have a choice but to comply. With Luigi gone, she had no one to protect her if Paul made good on his death threat. So she backed down and kept quiet. The two remaining $400 insurance payouts were sent directly to Paul, who forged Rose's signature and kept the money for himself. All in, killing Luigi Lavecchio had netted Bulba and Petrillo $1,700. And more importantly, with Bulba's new potion, they now had a guaranteed way to deliver death to anyone they insured. Thus, in August of 1932, the Bulba-Petrillo arsenic murder ring was born. Next time on Medical Murders, Morris Bulba and the Petrillo cousins expand their business throughout Philadelphia until a series of sloppy mistakes brings the arsenic ring into the national spotlight. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me, Alistair.
0: For more information on Morris Bulber, among the many sources we used, we found Poison Widows, a true story of witchcraft, arsenic, and murder by George Cooper, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Danny Messerschmidt, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.
3: I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from ParCast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances, and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear— Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.